The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com. Welcome to this episode of Security Clearance and Security on Federal News Radio. Today, I'm speaking with retired Lieutenant General Vincent Stewart. General Stewart spent nearly four decades serving in the U.S. Marine Corps, culminating in roles as the Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and Deputy Commander of U.S. Cyber Command. He retired in 2019 and founded Stewart Consulting Company, also works in a number of advisory roles across the defense and intelligence space today. We're chatting with him today because he was recently named as the recipient of this year's William Oliver Baker Award from the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. The Baker Award was established in 1984 and recognizes some of the greatest leaders and innovators in the national security space. So thank you so much for joining me on the program today, General Stewart. I really appreciate it. No, it is indeed my pleasure and looking forward to the conversation. We'll start the most recent thing and then we'll make you go back to the recesses of your 40-year career. You spent your last tours at DIA and Cyber Command. Those are some pretty significant missions at a pretty significant time and kind of understanding what's going on with cyber threats and cyberspace. Obviously, the DOD network, I used to work for the Army, so I understand the scope and scale of anything involving the military IT networks. It really becomes a very global threat. It's a pretty big elephant to eat. So how did you go about tackling kind of the cyber threat vector in your last role? I know you had some pretty significant accomplishments there in, in the time that you were there. So talk a little bit about that mission. The first thing I often tell folks is the threat is real. It is real from nation state. It's real from criminals. It's real from uh, hacktivists. And we're all part of that attack surface. And so when you come to grips with the idea that the threat is real, you also quickly realize that we can't do this on our own as individual fighting the threat. So you have to have a comprehensive strategy for how you deal with the threats, how do you do it uh, collaboratively so it's collective in defending our enterprise. We know that the threat are interested in the things that impact our way of life. So building the forces that can help us to understand the threat, counter the threat, and do it in a collaborative uh, public-private partnership approach is absolutely essential. And so we spent a good bit of time, uh, obviously, in building that military capability. But more importantly for us is how do we share, collaborate, and have collective defense rather than point defense. And so there was a good bit of effort uh, for us to do that sort of collaborative, cooperative work. And if we do that well, we have a chance to be successful. Somebody got a copy of my questions to you, sir, because this is a perfect tie into what I was going to ask next as well. So I love talking to folks who have been, you know, spent a career in the military and then pivot into the private sector. Do you see anything differently now being on the other side of it, out of uniform, but still working in this space? Yeah, there are a couple of things that uh, I find surprising. 
although it is important at the executive, the C-suite level, to recognize the threat, it is probably not as refined in how you counter that threat. There's an expectation, I think, in many cases that our government will solve this before my company becomes a target. So I'm always surprised that uh, folks understand the vulnerability, understand the risk, but don't build simple things like incident response plans to deal with when, not if the event occurs. And even some of the ones who have incident response plans have not exercised those incident response plans. So they're going to be figuring this thing out when there is a crisis, which is probably not the best time to figure out how you counter the, the threat. Now, more and more companies are hiring quote, cyber experts to be on their boards. Some of them are doing a very good job of listening to some of these uh, cyber experts, but some are simply, quite frankly, just checking the block. It becomes really important to be deliberate in our thinking in the corporate side. It's really important to have a response plan. It's really important to have uh, those tabletop exercise that helps you to think about what happens in the first 10 minutes, in the first hour, who has authorities, what are the scope of their authorities, what's your strategic communication plan. I don't always see that. No, I love that. I think that's great you know, advice and, and feedback. There's a ton more that's going on today, probably than ever before when it comes to information sharing, but there's still a heavy commitment on companies and especially those that are working and partnering with the federal government in any capacity. And I know one of the things that NCSC has really pushed a ton recently too, is that even if you're not working directly for the federal government, you still have the obligation for cyber response. You should still know that you're a potential victim of all of this. Certainly foreign intelligence adversaries are after all of that tech as well. Do you have any thoughts around that? Like, even if you're not in the defense industrial base per se, why do these cyber issues matter to you? Even though it's not in the defense industrial space, it is in the national security space. Economic impact in a banking sector, for instance, doesn't sound like defense, but will impact our national security. The risk, the things that we're seeing where adversaries are targeting the healthcare system has an impact on all of us can't find a direct line to defense effort, but it is all about the security of our nation in its broadest context. The economic implication, the information implication, the military implication, et cetera. So you don't have to draw a direct line to defense unless the line is defense in general of our nation and our our well-being across all the elements of power. And so I try to convince uh, folks that if I'm going after a defense entity, I may use any number of vectors to get to that entity. So I need strong defenses across our entire enterprise. I warn you, this is going to happen. We've touched on the end of your military career a little bit and your current career in the private sector. I want to go all the way back. You immigrated to the United States from Jamaica when you were 13. I think that's significant. We get a ton of questions about that kind of stuff at clearance jobs because a lot of people see the path into a national security career as one that's not necessarily accessible to immigrants. The military specifically has always had a great track record, I think, of attracting immigrants into service. So I'd love to get a little bit on your perspective as an immigrant into the country and then joining the military and then again, rising to kind of pretty much the highest levels within our intelligence community. I had no military experience. No one in my family had ever served. Um, But I wanted to do something to give back to my newly adopted uh, country. 
When I came here, I found that I had significant opportunities, which is why we, we emigrated to the United States. Tremendous op- opportunities here, warts and blemishes of this country. There is no other country on the face of the earth where the opportunities are present. If you're willing to go to work, if you're willing to get an education and you're willing to go to work and you're not uh, bound by some of the historical baggages of this country. When I went off to university, I went to Western Illinois University, which interestingly enough is the home of the fighting leathernecks. Much of my adult career, I've been a leatherneck either at the university or in the Marine Corps. I decided I wanted to do something to give back, to play my role as a citizen in this country. And so I looked at uh, both the Army and the Marine Corps and was convinced that in the Marine Corps, I could contribute to something bigger than myself. The intent uh, was to do it for three or four years and then leave the Marine Corps and do something else. Well, the opportunities continued to present itself to me in the Marine Corps. And there was one challenge after another that we were able to overcome uh, the challenges. And, And in this case, I mean, challenging opportunities, operational opportunities. And uh, the Marine Corps gave me some chance to go off and and study some more and get a couple of master's degree. And then I woke up one day and it was 38 years later, just putting one foot in front of the other uh, and taking advantage of those great opportunities that presented itself. Never envisioned that I would have a clearance, never envisioned that I was going to join the intelligence community. I started off in the armor tank community. That's what I wanted to do. Somewhere along the way, someone decided that the opportunity in the intelligence community was a good opportunity and it uh, it all seemed to have worked out in the end. Thanks to tech, only in your U.S. military. I love how the different career pivots get you there. And I love the way you phrase that with, you know, the next challenging opportunity. Well, you talked a little bit before about, and I did love this, you're not looking back, you're looking ahead because, you know, you don't want anybody to be able to catch up with you. But I do want to reflect maybe a little bit on, do you have key achievements or accomplishments in your career that you consider really significant or milestones that you've been really proud of? Truthfully, yeah. I had a unique opportunity as an intelligence officer to run a large combat outpost, Camp Fallujah, during the height of uh, the conflict there in Iraq. To have a military installation in the heart of the Sunni insurgency, to run that facility, to manage portion of the battle space, to have in excess of 4,000 people under my care, and to be effective in not only running the installation, but engaging with the locals around the installation, I would argue that that's probably one of my most satisfying accomplishments. We took care of the people. We made sure that they were ready for their combat missions, and we brought most everybody back home. So I, I feel really good about that. I love that. And you've talked a lot about different kind of aspects of your career that definitely tie into mentorship. I'm sure at different points in your career, you had opportunities to be mentored and have had opportunities to mentor others. Can you kind of talk about that experience, maybe some mentors in your career or how mentorship has played a factor? I know that's a big element of INSA as they're trying to kind of really energize the next generation of of intelligence leadership. So talk about mentorship in your career. Yeah, you know, I was very fortunate. I had from the early part of my career, the opportunity to command and lead Marines as a uh, young, really just a, a brand new captain. So I had an opportunity to lead at, I think, every every rank that I attained. And so it was, for me, the first part of this is how, as a leader, you inspire and empower people to bring their best every day. 
And then from that, who do you turn to either as an example, and I'll, I'll mention a couple of examples, or you turn to mentor as you try to impart uh, some of your values to the next generation. I remember General Officer Cliff Stanley was not a mentor, but what a great example. Everything you heard about Cliff Stanley said, that's who I want to be. And so it was always good to be around someone like that who set the example of what uh, excellence in leadership really looks like. And then I had the good fortune, probably later in my career than I had hoped, to have some terrific mentors who spent quality time with me, telling me what was important uh, for my personal development and career progression. And I made it in a point to reach back. And if we talk about reaching back or looking back, probably one of the things I'm most proud of is what uh, some folks affectionately call the Stuart Tree, where I have had the opportunity to reach back to some young men and women and mentor and guide them and demand excellence of them. My mentees have to read, they have to write, they have to present themselves in such a way that when the curtains come up, they are ready. They are carrying our reputation as part of this group. And I look back now and there are a number of young men primarily who are now general officers who I consider part of the Stuart tree. Mentorship, reaching back, pulling someone up, helping them to be successful, giving them the pathway, the recipe for success, uh, particularly for those who have been underrepresented because they don't have access uh, and they don't get to see what right looks like very often. So I'm a huge fan of both helping people to achieve. And uh, the other side of this, uh, well, there are a couple of parts. One, coaching, mentoring, and sponsoring. Uh, because I, I was the beneficiary of someone who called ahead and said, uh, put Vince Stewart in a particular job because he'll get it done. And he sponsored me with my next uh, commander uh, who arguably saved my career because when I was frustrated uh, and, and, and thought about resigning, he would not allow me to resign. And shortly thereafter, I got promoted. So uh, coaching uh, individuals, mentoring and guiding them, giving them the roadmap to success and sponsoring them uh, in their next assignments are absolutely critical components that I believe in strongly. I love that. That was that was my favorite part of the interview so far. I think that's so key. I love the Stuart tree analogy. I think we all need to be building our, our career trees. Absolutely. I think most of us get to a point where we've tried to quit a job at least once. If we haven't, we're probably not trying hard enough. <laughs> we haven't gotten frustrated enough. But you have to have that person that kind of en encourages you to keep going even when you're in that really tough assignment or at that spot that seems, you know, that seems impassable. You know, there were jobs that I wanted that I thought, wow, this would really be cool to do. And I pushed really hard to try to get it. And to have a mentor said, no, that's not the right job. And I look uh, back now and think, had I taken some of those really cool jobs that I wanted, I maybe would have retired as a colonel. But because someone pointed me in the right direction, the rest, as they say, is history. But I, I didn't know any better. I just, I wanted a cool job. 
Some of the growth jobs aren't the cool jobs, sadly enough. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the Baker Award. I really love that award because it has been awarded to so many different individuals over the years and shows kind of the breadth of intelligence. So members of Congress, former CIA directors, cabinet secretaries. Why is the the intelligence community include all of these different actors? And how do you see that as really important to us accomplishing our objectives, that all of those people play a role um, and that all of them are, are, are working together? Yeah, uh, actually, you, you've hit it, uh, but let me let me back out just a little bit. I almost fell out of my chair when uh, Tish Long called and told me I was selected because of the incredible heroes before me. And when I say you hit it, we, we've all played a role in this community, whether it's in the legislative, ensuring that we have the right legal framework, legislative framework for how we do business, how do we ensure that we have proper oversight in this space. Just driving development, the continued development of our intelligence community, the continued professionalization of our intelligence community, the continued drive to ensure that we are well positioned to deal with all of the threats and challenges in the world. This is team sport. And so cutting across all the diverse entities and individuals seems absolutely appropriate. And gosh, what heroes that have done this before me had this opportunity before me? And I, I tell folks now, much like the, the medals and ribbons and devices that I wore on my uniform, I wore them, but so many other people earned them for me. It was the team and the people who I had the pleasure of leading and who were supportive of me that got me to this place. And I can't take a whole lot of credit except for not screwing it up too badly. I love it. Well, you kind of touched on this already, but yeah, kind of talk about that. The feeling it that you had knowing that you've achieved this award or been granted it. You talked about your initial reaction now that you have had time to reflect on it. I'm I'm still trying to process that because there's so much more that I think I can and maybe should be doing to truly earn it. I recognize the things that I've contributed uh, has had an impact, but when I compare to some of the others, I know I've got a whole lot more to do to truly feel like I've earned that. I'm honored. I'm humbled. Um, I am, in many cases, overwhelmed. Maybe I'm too harsh a uh, judge on, on my accomplishments, but I'm going to use this, hopefully, as an opportunity to do more so that, in retrospect, uh, I will feel better about all the different ways I've, uh, I've contributed to the success of our community. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite basking in the glory just yet. Well, I think well, that's probably a good sign. That's what the community wants and needs. And maybe that's an, a new pivot point for awards like this saying, hey, this isn't saying like you've accomplished, you might not have even accomplished your most significant things yet, you know, but you've accomplished a ton, enough worth recognizing. And now we get to pivot and move on to the next significant threat or accomplishment. And we continue to have more of those, certainly in this community, I think we know. I think that's fair. I think, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm probably in some ways too harsh a grader. I know if, if I were to look back, I could probably point to some really good milestones. I'm not ready to rest. And so this may be a springboard for some other opportunities to continue to contribute uh, to the community. 
I know I used up all of my time. Well, on that, thank you so much, General Stewart, for your time. Um, go to insaonline.org to learn more about the Baker Award Dinner, which is happening later this year. And we are really looking forward to that opportunity to celebrate all of your accomplishments, General Stewart, which certainly are significant and our community is, is excited to recognize. Again, in the IC, a lot of your successes are classified, as we very much know. So the opportunity to kind of recognize a career of service, even one that's very far from over, that has had really a lot of important milestones is certainly worth doing. And we're looking forward to doing that at the Baker Dinner. Thank you. uh, And thank all the folks who voted for me. And I'm really looking forward to June 9th, I think it is. And let's have a party. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about the new e-app, or as many of you lovingly know it, the Equip 2.0, I guess I should say. Lindy, this is another new development in the world of security clearances. I guess, why don't we start with what is the e-app? I'm sure a lot of people listening have heard about it. Maybe they've kind of heard some whispers or some rumors that this is coming down the pike, but what is it? So it is the brand spanking new form that we're all going to use to fill out our security clearance application. So it's the a part of the new security clearance system of record that is used within specifically the Department of Defense, the National Background Investigation Services kind of enable this e-app system. We've been talking about it for, I mean, for years. It's like, welcome to the pace of government. I think they talked about the rollout of e-app like seven years ago. I mean, I don't want to know how many years ago because we've known eQuip needed to be updated for a while. I mean, especially post OPM data breach, there was kind of this huge, like everybody's looking around like, what exactly are the IT systems that we're using to enable our elaborate security clearance process? Oh, maybe those are due for an overhaul. eApp is a part of that. It's definitely a better form. If you look at the two application systems side by side, there's just a lot of really simple things in eApp. Like it will automatically save your information. Like, okay, the eQuip, I mean, it won't even save. Like it does not even like save your information. So if you're filling it out and like it times out, it will not save your information, right? I mean, that's like my experience with eQuip. So eApp has simple things that will make you want to pull out less of your hair as you're filling out your SF86 or 85P or whatever you're doing for a public trust or security clearance application. And it will be rolled out across all of industry this year. So it's largely used for, again, the 95-ish percent of government agencies that use, again, DOD's kind of system process or the agencies that work through DCSA. And now it's going to be rolled out to those industry customers who will also be using eApp. So welcome to, I want to say like, it's not the 21st century because we've been talking about this form for so long, but welcome to the form of like the last century that we're implementing in this century. (laughs) Well, and I think it's also, you know, important to clarify for people here because some of the confusion that I've heard about this is you know, people's misinterpretation that this is the new form or the new PVQ that that is being rolled out. But in fact, there's two distinct and big changes that are happening to the background investigation process this year. One is the new e-app, which is, as you mentioned, basically just the new platform for filling out electronically the background investigation form, the SF-86, the SF-85, the SF-85P, whatever it is that you're filling out. And then separately, we have the PVQ, which is 
this, you know, update to the form itself where they're kind of melding them all together. And it's going to be this ABC part, you know, type form where they say, okay, you know, based on your position sensitivity or the clearance you're going for, you're going to fill out part A, part B, part C, et cetera. So it's going to kind of merge them all together. So we've got these two completely separate, albeit related updates that are happening really in the same time frame, And I think it's causing some people confusion as to what's what. But, you know, I, I think the other thing, Lindy, about how long this has taken, I mean, I, I know they say that this is happening this year, but have you actually seen it happen yet? Have you seen anybody using the new eApp system or is this still kind of we're in a holding pattern? Oh, no, eApp is happening. And for a long time, I said that and you shouldn't have listened to me because it was fake news. It wasn't happening, but now it really is. So I know they had pilots throughout a couple of key government customers, so folks who had kind of a lot of, who were who were doing a lot of investigations through DCSA, some industry partners. They kind of did some pilots rolling out to them. We saw some different government agencies that were doing pilots. There's a cool chart. So maybe I'll embed that with the article we do about this podcast, but PAC PMO has released showing that eApp versus eQuip enrollment Right now, it's a really tiny little dot with not not as much. But what we're going to see over the course of this year, kind of similar to what we saw for continuous vetting rollout, where it kind of started, it slow rolled out. I mean, in the e-app, slow roll was like, like whoa, slow roll, because it was took forever for it to roll out. But I think over the course of 2023, what we're going to see is I anticipate full enrollment across the DOD security clearance population using e-app and equip going away for them. So unless Imbus blows up or something, I think that's going to happen. Put me on it. I don't know. Sean, you seem skeptical. Do you think it's going to happen? Yeah. I mean, I'm a skeptic by nature. I think all attorneys are. But, you know, I, I like you, I've been hearing this for years. And, and you know, I, I every time I hear it, I kind of go, I'll believe it when I see it. But if you're starting to see it happening already, then I guess that's a sign of progress. I do think, you know, it is it is long overdue. And I think that, you know, hopefully it's going to be uh, some some good changes coming down the pike. But the irony here is those of us who have long been advocating for a new form, as I said earlier, there is kind of this weird nostalgia like, well, you know, wow, it's really changing. The the, the process, the, the times they are changing, it makes you kind of feel old. I guess that's, that's the best I can say. Yeah. Equip had some, some real challenges, but I think any form of this size is going to. I mean, I do have some empathy for government because you're looking at, I mean, the complexity of all of the different questions that we ask as a part of the security clearance process it is a lot and it is trying to create a single form framework to do that. You know, I'm not going to totally throw the government a bone. This is long overdue and we could have done better, but it is a complicated system and rolling things out just government man never moves fast. I know. Well, you know, as it, as it does come online and, and people start to see it, hopefully we'll, we'll get a sense as to, you know, where things are heading with not only, you know, the, the, the changes in the form itself, but also, you know, the PVQ as well. And some of the things that are happening in terms of, you know, what the government is looking at, because I think that's for, for most people, the, the average clearance holder, that's really, you know, where the interest is. I mean, yes, it's, it's nice to, you know, not have your information deleted mid completion or, you know, to, to have, you know, some of these convenient features that a lot of us are just used to now with pre-populating things and stuff like that. I mean, that that's all great. And I don't think anyone's going to turn up their nose at that. But I think certainly for most people who are, you know, filling out these forms, I think the, the biggest interest is going to be what are the substantive changes that are coming down the pike. And because these, you know, changes with the eApp and the PVQ are kind of coming, you know, at the same time, I think, you know, really within the next 
couple years, few years, as people start to see the changes, um, I think that's when it's really going to be noticeable that, yeah, you know, we're we're in a new era now. It's it's no longer the 90s. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.